0: podcast features interviews from women around the world focusing on birth business sustainability health sex Cleo Carly with me today. Hello Cleo. Hello. How are you?
1: Yeah I'm good thank you.
0: Great. So um, first I'd just love to dive into a little bit about you, um, a little bit about your story and how you got to um, be in the line of work that you're in now.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, So I am 27, uh, living in Sydney, Australia at the moment, but I'm originally from the coastal country. Um, But I've lived sort of all over the place, all all up and down the East Coast a little bit. So I've had some different influences in my life and I I think I knew very early what it was like to have interests that didn't really fit into the norm coming from a more rural place. Um, And I was kind of in and out of there, I moved out of there. Uh, for a little bit while I was a teenager and was on the central coast and then went back to the south coast and so I spent a lot of my life being the odd one out um, which kind of gave me an affinity for being the odd one out and meant that progressing into the line of work that I'm in now wasn't such a radical step away from any norms that I'd already known. Um, I guess Sexually, I've, I've just always been interested in pushing my own boundaries um, and pushing my own boundaries in a way that isn't even necessarily sexual, but is like sensational. Um, so yeah, I've always been into body modification. I've always been into the ideas of, of pushing the frontiers of that kind of like psychosexual level that we inhabit. Um, and it was a very natural progression to end up pushing the boundaries of other people's in the line of work that I'm in. Uh, but I sort of started out more submissively and then made the transition into um, professional dominance as well. So, yeah, I
0: don't know. <laughs> amazing. And so how long have you been with professional dominatrix for? Um, coming up six years, like five and a half years now. Wow, amazing. So I'd love to get some insight into... That world um, like what does what what does it mean for you? What's your role? And why do you think it's kind of important that we have these spaces for people and um, Jobs available for people to Yeah, undertake this work um,
1: So It's kind of difficult to describe my role because it's so broad and so encompassing. But the best description I've got for it so far is just that I'm a provider or a facilitator of other people's fetishes. So I think there's a bit of a misconception about being a dominatrix, that that entails a lot of like yelling at people and humiliation and aggressiveness and certainly the pop culture representation of my profession would give people that impression. Um, but it's, it's more so providing a safe space for other people to explore their own sexuality um, and their sexual boundaries and their fears and desires and everything that gets wrapped up in our sexuality, which is actually symptomatic of our place in society and something a little bit wider than just what goes on in the bedroom. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's important to provide spaces for that, for exactly that reason, like our sexuality is an intrinsic part of human nature. It's not something separate. It's treated like something separate, but it's you know, it's we all eat, we all sleep, we all breathe, and we all have a sexual element to us just biologically. I mean, it's reproductive, but our sexuality kind of serves as a means or a space uh, in which we can understand the world that we are living in. Um, so providing a space for people to express and explore their own sexuality is as important as providing a space for people to explore um, their mental health or what they might like to eat that day or anything else that is like intrinsic to human nature.
0: Mm. Yeah, I always feel like there is such stigma around these kind of work. And for me, I really feel like it's um, like just as important as a therapist for somebody to be able to go and express themselves in the space. Um, But how do you view it? Like, is that something similar for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably quite important to note the difference between working within BDSM and working within uh, other forms of sex work. I think there's much less stigma around my industry or my facet of the industry than there is around the rest of the industry, um, which makes it more important for me to be able to speak. I think um, because there are so many people who would like to be able to speak about the issues that affect the sex industry and people working within it, but can't for fear of being out and the stigma that's Related to that, which I don't have to grapple with nearly as much because of the facet in the industry that I'm working in, but also because of the legal frameworks that I work within, because I'm white, because I'm middle class, because I'm reasonably attractive. Like there's a whole bunch of privileges that it's pretty important to acknowledge off the bat. Um, And it's also important to note that it's, it can be therapeutic, but it's not therapy. You know, seeing a sex worker is not therapy, but it definitely can have a therapeutic effect in the same way that going out into nature can have a therapeutic effect. But if you need to see a psychiatrist, you should still see a psychiatrist and those things are not a fair substitute.
0: Definitely. Definitely. Um, so what, what is the differences for BDSM say then in the other worlds of, um, sex working, why do you think it is so, um, much more accepted? Oh, um, I I think
1: it's probably wrapped up with the idea of the prostituted woman and uh, exploited femininity and like sexual assault and sexual harassment and how that plays into females' ideas or uh, sort of like feminist symbolism. I think it's much harder for a sex worker, exclusionary, radical feminist or a SWERF to justify the same attitudes toward a woman in a position of relative power. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, predominantly my clients are men. I definitely see women, I see non-binary people, trans people, queer people, couples, like I see anyone who would like my services, but most of my clients are men, cis straight white men. And so the idea of a cis straight white man paying a woman in order to dominate them in whatever way you interpret that is just, easier on the stomach for a lot of women to handle. I don't necessarily think that the same stigma differences exist in the male perception of my industry. Um, I think maybe it touches on some issues around toxic masculinity and um, masculinity in general, the idea that other men might pay a woman to dominate them or hurt them or whatever that might be, take away their power, Uh, but definitely I mean, it's just, it's just a reality. Like I, I can do a magazine interview or a podcast interview. My whole family know, you know, it, it's easy for me to be out. It's extremely easy for me to be out comparatively to if I was doing full service sex work or, I mean, even, even stripping or cam girls or other forms of like non-penetrative sex work still receive more stigma than BDSM. So mm. for whatever reason that is like whether I like it or not I think it's my responsibility to be able to speak on behalf of more marginalized workers and people who can't speak out
0: Mm, that's interesting so like for other women working in the industry um they're maybe perceived by the mainstream as more like in a victim state like they need to be doing that whereas the dominatrix has more of a yeah a position of power I never really looked at it in that way but that's that's really fascinating What, what is the current, like, legal situation with sex work in Australia at the moment? Do you know?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, so it, va- it varies completely state to state. Uh, basically, in New South Wales where I work and in New Zealand, uh, we have a decriminalised sex industry. Mm-hmm. So that means exactly what it sounds like it means. It means that no aspect of working as a sex worker is criminalised. So we can work in a legal brothel, uh, we can do... Like escort work or private work, legally, camming, stripping, BDSM—all of it is legal. Um, and it cut what it, what that means for people who work under a decriminalized system is it shifts the context of sex work out of the framework of criminal law and into the framework of commercial and labor law. So it gives us increased labor protections. It means that if you are sexually abused by your manager at a brothel or a client, you can take that to the police because the police can't then turn around and arrest you, which is the case for the majority of sex workers in the world. Um, Even under, you know, the feminist lauded Nordic model, which gets a lot of press and on paper seems to be this wonderful solution for abolishing prostitution altogether and blah, blah, blah. It's, it, it brings a whole host of problems criminalising any aspect of the sex industry. So even if you remove the criminalization from the selling of sex and you get it to the buying of sex, which is what the Nordic model proposes to do, they criminalise clients rather than criminalising workers. It's still, I mean, there's just, there's so many issues with that. Um, there's so many issues with the more marginalised sex workers that are affected more heavily. I think even in the States where the selling of sex is criminalised, you can still be a professional dominatrix and you're not criminalised. But I mean, at the end of the day, like you're fucking a guy up the ass with a strap on. So like, what's the difference there between penetrative sex as a receiver and penetrative sex as a giver? And it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, criminalization on any level is not what anyone wants, but our model isn't perfect either. I think it's still very exclusionary for migrant workers. If they can't work legally, they're, you know, susceptible of, of a victim of the same sorts of problems that we would be if we couldn't work legally. So, I don't know, there's a lot, of, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. But.
0: Mm. So is New South Wales the only state in our country that is decriminalised?
1: Yeah. South Australia are currently fighting for it. Um, so I think their proposals will go to, go to parliament in the next week or so, um, maybe, maybe a little longer. They're taking submissions at the moment anyway, but it's been something that's been fought for by almost every state in Australia. Um, and it's only been, I think New South Wales has only had it since the early 90s, maybe even later than, actually don't quote me on that, I don't know. 90s, early 2000s, New, um, New Zealand was 2003 um, and, and New Zealand and New South Wales are the only places on the, in the planet that have a decrim model.
0: Wow, amazing. Um, in your perspective, why do you think the government wants to have it criminalized like what do you think is the and you know we can get as um you know conspiracy theory as we want to hear around this but you know why do you think there is so much um stigma around sex work and why do you think there is a big um yeah push by the government to criminalize it
1: um it depends on what aspect of it they want to criminalize so i think there's underpinning a lot of it is the idea that if you criminalize something it will make it go away so it's exactly the same argument as we see with harm minimization for drug use as opposed to criminalizing drug use there's just this persistent idea despite 40 years of it not working that if you just say drugs are illegal, people won't do drugs, and then all the harms that come from drug use will just magically disappear, which is obviously absolutely ridiculous. Um, so, the same sorts of thing exists when you want to criminalize the selling of sex. It's an attempt to just get rid of the sex industry altogether, to not have to think about it. Um, when you criminalize the buying of sex, I think it's a bit different. Um, I mean, both like like sex positive and inverted commas feminists and anti prostitution swerves tend to posit the sex industry as. Morally and intrinsically good or bad uh, rather than work. It's like they think of the sex worker in terms of their relationship to their own femaleness and what that symbolizes. So, a, the prostituted woman or a sex worker or a woman who is caught up in some patriarchal capitalist society, which means that they have to, again, in inverted commas, sell sex, is threatening, just as threatening to like radical feminists on the left as women's economic independence is to more radical people on the right. Um, So you're kind of, you're constantly at odds from both ends of the political spectrum. Um, And at no point, (laughs) almost never the rights and safety and voices and opinions of sex workers really considered in that it's more people speaking over and for them rather than with them or including them in the conversation.
0: Mm, Yeah, I hear that a lot. And um, on that point, you know, like, with feminists and feminism, where do you stand in that space? Do you consider yourself to be that or?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I know, you know, feminism isn't one, one set of beliefs or a, an ideology that fits 52% of the population. So I am absolutely a feminist in the traditional definition of that word. I just don't align myself with like SWERFs or turfs or that end of feminism, which refuses to take into consideration the impact of what they're doing. I mean, it's, it's mostly well-intentioned. It's usually wanting to abolish the sex industry is wanting to free women from what they perceive to be as choiceless or like a last resort or some victim narrative. It's not, it's not coming from the same, the same moral place as when it's on the right or when it's, you know, like supercarceral and, but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, oh yes, I'm a
0: feminist. <laughs> it's
1: the easiest way to answer that question.
0: Yeah, it's interesting in this space because um, I feel like this happens a lot where people, they decide to fight for minorities or for, you know, I put quotes in underprivileged groups, but without actually directly consulting um, those specific groups. And there's this amazing Alan Watts quote where he talks about this monkey that's up a tree and the monkey looks down and sees this fish like swimming through the river and he climbs down the tree and he pulls out the fish because he thinks the fish is drowning and he puts the fish on land like, yes, I saved him, you know, like the savior, I did it. And then the fish dies. And I think that is like a really powerful statement that many people can carry with them is that often when we are fighting for something I think it's really important to come back to our perspective and place within that fight and if that is a real lived experience for us and that feels really true to me um, for you know the different spaces that I tend to fight for are intrinsically a part of me you know and I, I have no um, desire to to fight in spaces where I haven't had that cellular experience and, understanding and I'd really just, like, love to encourage people who want to support um, sex workers to support them by giving them the voice, you know, giving them the opportunity to make those decisions rather than coming on the behalf um, thinking that they know what's better for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah,
1: uh, completely, absolutely. You see it so much in, in developing countries where there's these, sort of like anti-trafficking NGOs that go in with the intention of rescuing these poor women from the sex industry and they take this 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 just blanket approach of just like raiding brothels and saving these women and then putting them to work in sewing factories or getting them teaching them how to make candles or some other really highly gendered and feminized idea of labor that pays a third of what they might have been making and they're working four times as much and they you know it's like maybe this Cambodian woman decided that with the choices that she had, not to say that she would have decided this, if she had like a social welfare system or some other choices, um, she might've decided that she was going to enter sex work because it meant that she could work three nights a week or four nights a week and spend the rest of the time at home raising her children. And then some white feminist from the States comes in and saves her and puts her to work in a fucking button factory. And she never gets to spend any time with her kids and she's earning less money. And it's like, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's the, the f- folly of white feminism in general, I think, but it especially happens at that intersection of race and sex work all over the developing nations all the time.
0: Mm, yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like also it's important to note that like historically many cultures have, and I don't, I like not use the term sex workers, but priestesses and there's been places always where people can go and, and have experiences with other people around awakening sexuality or, um, you know, intimacy in that space. And nowadays, especially because we're moving more and more into a technological based society, one that I feel where, you know, really creating strong separateness from each other in terms of um, physical contact and touch. Do you feel like, you know, there's going to be more of a boom in your industry to, to um, like in the future because of something like this?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think The intersection of sex and technology is a super interesting space. So there's a lot going on for exactly that. I mean, like sex work definitely is already at the forefront of this. They're always at the forefront of this. I think even Skype was invented or the concept of Skype and those sorts of things were invented by sex workers or people connected to the sex industry. And you see like the rise of teledildonics, which is um, it's like having like a dildo or a sex toy that is connected remotely to another sex toy or to another person on the other side of the world or however, you know, just remotely Um, and they can control and feel the movement. So say you've got like a fleshlight type, like a a fake vagina thing. Um, And another person might have the control of that or the control of a dildo which are connected and you experience the sensation that the other person is providing or feeling on the other side of that so this there's lots of like really interesting developments in sex tech which is largely women run and largely sex worker run and sex worker influenced which will have some pretty amazing uses going into that's, the future
0: that's incredible i mean i was in a long-term relationship with somebody who lived in america and i wish i knew that that technology existed <laughs> yeah yeah it is incredible <laughs> so it, and they're pretty new so i mean
1: it's got it's got a way to go yet um and there's, yeah, there's lots of, lots of super interesting developments. I think there's like a um, <laughs> sort of a societal or like global moral panic about sex robots at the moment, um, mm. which is a little hilarious as well, because we're just so far off, like an actual functioning sex robot that it's not funny, but it's in every headline every couple of months. There's some like moral panic article about sex robots taking over and sex robots are going to be able to kill us all. And it's like, well, we don't, we don't have any sex robots yet. Like, what, is, what are you even talking about?
0: Really I, did, I did see that Netflix documentary. That I forget what it was called, but it was about sex bots. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's funny because they, obviously they're in mostly men. And, and I'm not trying to generalize, but I assume that mostly men are going to buy a sex bot just because, you know, the different hormones, like women tend to have a more heart connection and that's stereotypical, but, you know, coming from a majority space. And they interviewed these guys and, you know, a, a lot of what was coming through around why they – why they wanted a sex bot was because that, like, real women were just too hard work. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, well, I mean, sometimes we are.
0: <laughs> For sure, but that's why I love us, you know? Yes. <laughs> I'm into
1: working really- hard. <laughs> um, there's a really amazing sex robot researcher from the UK called Kate Devlin, mm-hmm. um, and she's a book called Turned On The Science of Sex. So it's like Science, Sex, and Robots, or something like that's so the byline. Um, but she's amazing. Like she does a lot of of um, exploration into exactly that. Like uh, if we are going to be developing sex robots, which is, you know, it's happening, it's being developed, although we don't have it yet. Like what is the direction we actually want to take them in? I mean, do we just want this to be another male gaze focused advent that primarily serves their needs? Or are we wanting to perhaps move out of these um, anthropomorphic ideas of a sex robot like why do they have to look like a human and why do, I mean why does any robot have to look like a human but it, especially in the realms of sexuality where we can be as creative as we want to like we can we can make these weird tentacle alien things if we want to and people will still be into it it doesn't have to look like a pretty white blonde 16-year-old girl which is what a lot of totally
0: yeah and and that's what this netflix docker showed like this factory which i was just like First of all, why are they all white, prepubescent, and they've got no asses? Like, who who are you catering to? Like, and and, and most of it, like the recordings, you know, they could um, type in what they wanted her to say, or they were pre-recordings, like just stuff that was like, look, like, oh, hey Jeffrey, I love it when you fuck me from behind, you know, and there's this really like super white girl um, voice that was just so irritating. And I think, yeah, you're right. There is so much potential. And, and, and we're really, I think the people who are creating these dolls as well, like anything, um, people who are creating like really have responsibility to, to not stereotype or to not portray just one kind of sex doll.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's yeah, responsibility is the right word.
0: So do you have fear about a potentially a sex doll stealing your job? (laughs)
1: <laughs> no I don't I am excited for the future of having like a robot that I could include in my sessions I mean imagine doing like a cuckolding session or um some sort of like I don't know just a forced buy scenario or something like that with a robot that'd be awesome
0: a okay so I'm not really sure of the lingo but the last thing you said was
1: forced by is um it's a fetish that a lot of men have which is it's basically wanting to explore bisexuality or wanting to explore uh, like a, a same-sex relationship or a same-sex sexual experience without wanting to actually do that with another man. So if a mistress forces you to, if you're in a dungeon and she brings in another guy and is like, you have to suck his dick, then it's easier to swallow than if you just went out to a gay bar or like got on Grindr and made that happen yourself. I mean there's like some inherent power dynamic play with that as well that isn't always necessarily it's not always that these people wouldn't be able to go out and provide it for themselves. Sometimes it it really just is the fact of like being under control or being under the power of another person and having them decide what you do. But for a lot of people it's kind of like a, a transitional stage into being able to explore those desires for themselves. If there's a woman involved to begin with, it seems less gay.
0: Wow, amazing. I would love to know more about, like, what other things do you offer? Like, that sounds so incredible. I mean, I'm talking from a um, perspective of being, you know, I identify as a lesbian. And so my whole, <laughs> my whole ethos is, like, trying to turn the world gay. Or at least <laughs> trying to turn the world, like, bisexual, you know? And specifically in mm-hmm. Australia, I feel this, like, such a heavy, um, oh, it's such a suppressed space for men sexually Mm -hmm. you know I think like as women we actually are quite freed in the fact that we can be intimate with our friends and our girlfriends and not then have to assume like oh I'm gay or I'm bisexual like that can just happen quite freely for us but I often find like especially amongst my you know really heteronormative cis male gender friends is that I'm like I know they're craving something, you know, <laughs> but like they don't want to ever say it. And and I think like that's the beauty of the work that you do and the industry that you work in is that it's allowing people to live out their dreams and fantasies in a way that um, our reality doesn't allow us to. And sometimes that looks like having to break the character of your everyday norm and stepping into a space to explore that side of you. Because, I mean, I don't know where, where you viewed on this, but like, how, like, do you feel that the suppression of sexuality in our society has a hold or an effect on, say, um, sexual abuse or, or pedophilia, like in the, in the world? Is that something that you, that comes into your mind often?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I think it's impossible to work within a sexuality sphere without thinking about these sorts of issues pretty frequently. Um, I mean, the suppression of sexuality is at the root of so many of our issues globally. I think I don't. I don't know that I want to touch on pedophilia. I don't think I am. I don't think I'm informed enough to really offer an opinion on that. And I, w- I think it's irresponsible for me to offer an opinion on something so powerful. Um, and so potentially triggering and traumatizing without really knowing enough so I'm just going to skip that one entirely Um, but I mean as far as as far as sexual abuse and sort of those other like darker manifestations of human sexuality I do think they manifest themselves when people aren't given an opportunity to explore their sexuality to its full extent in a safe space I think for a lot of people being able to enter a space where they know that no matter what they say they're not going to be judged does provide a cathartic release that is absolutely necessary in the world. And I've definitely had experiences at work that have really challenged me on a human level and not a not a sex worker level. Um, and... I think he tells you, like, say I have a client that comes in and says they want, like, a kidnap interrogation session and they've got some, you know, piece of information that they're going to give me in that interrogation and I've got to get it out of them. Usually that will be, you know, like, oh, I cheated on my wife or, like, something. Um, not that that's not low level particularly going to come up against any... Really strong rape, someone who had sexually abused a family member or something like that, and it's they they're treating they're treating the fact that you are offering to express the way that they feel about that, and I think there's a huge intersecting stigma around men going to therapy or men seeking help with their mental health that sort of gets put on sex workers a lot I think sex workers act as therapists when men don't want to go and see an actual therapist and you hear a lot with and don't know how to handle so there's yeah I mean there's work to be done (laughs) in our expression of sexuality and in our or do a sexual level. I think a lot of things get expressed sexually to have a funny way of doing that.
0: Mm, I guess this comes back to your I think. Mm. (laughs) Sorry, you go. Sorry, I'm in Bali. So the internet is like going in and out, but I think we're good. I think we're back. You can hear me? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can hear Yeah. And I, I guess that comes back to, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, just stating a, around that, you know, sex workers are not therapists. And so like really advising people that if they, they need um, mental health and they're looking for a therapist and someone to provide that space for them, that they, they don't seek out um you know se- um, sex workers or professionals in that space because that's not what you're holding
1: psychology so
0: yeah um I, could make it get I feel like my internet's just being like a retard right now but you can hear me okay yeah Okay, I think we're back. Um, so around that space of having to, um, I guess, show up in that way, like what what are your um, implemented self-care uh, spaces? Like how do you make sure that you look after yourself um, post or pre-sessions and what do you do for your own um, mental health and looking after others? Um. I think it's
1: changed a lot. When I first started out, I compartmentalised a lot, you know. I, I think it's quite easy to compartmentalise working in the sex industry because you literally have a different name. So you get to step into the role of someone else that is marked by a name and that's powerful in itself. But there was a while where, I mean, when I first started, I didn't even wear black in my everyday life. Like I would always wear black at work and then I would not wear black work. And I would have certain perfumes and certain lingerie and things that were reserved only for the working version of me that would never enter my personal life. And that sort of dissipated the longer that I've been in the industry and the more that it's, it's become a part of me. I mean, it was always a part of me it was just an exaggerated compartmentalization of me, but I feel the more open that I've been about my work, the more activism and advocacy work that I've done around the sex industry, the more that this is like a part of my identity that other people immediately assume. So it's given me more freedom to uh, to sort of enmesh that with my everyday life as well, which I came with a whole host of problems for not really being able to separate work anymore. Um, and I'm still figuring some of those out. I don't work as much, So I only probably only work about three days a week now, which gives me a lot of time for, like, self-care in whatever way I choose to. Like, usually with reading or spending time not thinking about work and not working and doing leisurely things, which I can do because I've got the freedom and financial flexibility too. But other than that, I don't know. I mean, I'm still figuring it out. Sometimes work really affects me and I don't have any... I mean, I can't take sick leave. I don't have any job protections. Like, there's a whole... The whole framework of working in the sex industry that sort of mitigates self-care in a lot of ways. Because when you know, I, when I went through a breakup a few years ago, I had to get another job because I just couldn't work. I didn't feel dominant at all. I felt like a scared, vulnerable, lost little girl, and I didn't know who I was or what to do with myself. And there's just absolutely no way that I could act like a dominatrix when I was in that headspace. So I just had to get a second job, and I worked like one day a week and like barely barely paid any attention to that side of me for about three or four months until I felt like I was ready to be there again. Um, And that's not a great thing, I don't think. Uh, It's like an aspect of the job that isn't great, that you can only really do it when you're feeling super strong within yourself. Um, Like especially for BDSM, but for all sex workers, it's just so vulnerable. I mean, you're, you're, you're really taking on and opening up a lot more than you do in a lot of other industries so yeah self-care is important but I don't know that I have the best advice for it just yet
0: I feel like we're all just working through our steps of self-care you know I feel like self-care has really like stepped into like the vocabulary in the last kind of 12 to 18 months and everyone's talking about it and then reflecting on like oh shit what is my self-care like I'm the same I'm like people are like you just go 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 and I'm like yeah because like I don't know, self care for me, it feels like <laughs> slowing down and like I'm just true vata, you know, like I'm air sign and I'm air everything and I just have like a lot of energy and I drink coffee like a lot of it. So, you know, <laughs> <You're> like, people who <laughs> like calm down, I'm like, calming down gives me anxiety, you know, like people are, like chill, chill, just like have an afternoon meditation. I'm like, that is, you're giving me anxiety even talking about that.
1: Yeah. But I am yeah. trying
0: to integrate it slowly into my practices, which is like I just I mean, my thing is I just do yin yoga because like that's my way of like actively meditating, you know. So I feel mm-hmm. like I'm meeting myself in the middle ground. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And everybody has their own little things that they will work out. I um, suppose I do a little bit of active
1: meditation. Like I haul a hula hoop. Um so yeah, if I if I feel like I need that kind of movement meditation, I hoop Um, I DJ a little bit so I can escape into music, but I need to get much better at like actual mindful meditation as well. My partner's really good at it. He sets a lot of side, a lot of time aside for it, but I need to be better.
0: Yeah. We all have improvements, right? (laughs) We'll all work on it. I feel like life is just one big journey of improvements, but also just like, recognizing to be soft with ourselves as well I mean I'm just in that stage in my life where I'm like in my 30s and I'm like girl yeah you got it like it's chill like <laughs> stop trying to be here there and everywhere you know just yeah. relax and enjoy it for a bit which which <laughs> is really nice I'm so stoked to be in my 30s I feel like I'm Wow, I just never want to be in my twenties again. Like once you hit thirty, for me anyway, it's like, Woo, I've landed in this body, yeah, with this person. Like, whoa, we got this girl.
1: Wow, oh, that's great to hear. I feel yeah. like I'm quite excited to be in my thirties too. It seems like a good good age to be.
0: Yeah, you know, and there's always this, like, strange stigma in society, especially, I think, as women, that, like, um, as you get older, you know, things are more depressive and, like, it's just such bullshit. I think it's just because the more that women the older women get the more empowered they become so the only way our society can suppress women is to state that you know the elderly are uh, absolute, obsolete or that suddenly as you hit a certain age you're used by date's gone and you're like off the shelf and all this bullshit which mm-hmm. for me I'm like wow older women are so hot you know like oh, that's the awesome. way that I see it Yeah, I
1: work with a lot of older women too. I think um, BDSM is sort of one of the facets of the industry where the older that you are, the more that you're respected because it's assumed that you have more experience and that you're better at your job. Um, So I work with like women of all ages. I work with women in their 60s and 50s and 40s and it's so good. I love being surrounded by energy and opinions and wisdom of people that have grown up in completely different contexts and generations to me. It's so useful
0: so when you work like you do you work privately or you work um in a you work in a dungeon
1: yeah so we have um I work out of a dungeon in Sydney um but when I tour when I'm in other cities or other states then I work privately
0: and so, um, for the criminalization space, like, do you just often do that on like forums or like privately, I mean, and also how do you make sure your safety is like looked after?
1: Um, I mean, safety, uh, I, Safety is tricky. I think the most dangerous place for a woman to be is in her own home. So I don't know that you can really do too much to ensure that you're any more safe in a space alone with a male than you can as a woman in any other walk of life, in any other place. Um, but I mean, you do, we have screening procedures and there are, there are sex worker communities um, that i don't want to speak too much about this publicly as well because giving away screening procedures or our safety tactics can work actively against us in terms of our own safety um, but the internet uh other than sester foster which is like a set of laws that are directly affecting safety as sex workers all over the world the internet is a bit of a godsend with that you can be warned about people and make concessions that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to if you didn't have that knowledge Um, And as far as advertising, like, there are just dedicated websites and places to advertise.
0: Cool. So considering that you're so outspoken, you are, you know, obviously pretty open about what you do. Um, Like, does that affect your travel? Um, I know that the states have um, severe bans on sex workers. Has that affected your ability to get in there or?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, Homeland Security in the U.S., ban anyone who has sold sex in the last 10 years from entry, like along with Nazis and spies and, you know, people who have gotten really serious drug crimes. And like, it's just, it's one of the most ludicrous laws, but I actually haven't tried to enter the States since a lot of those came in. Um, So I wouldn't know. I also am not entirely sure how it would affect me because the perception of professional BDSM is that it's not sex work. It is sex work, obviously, uh, but the perception of it from like a legal standpoint in the States is that it isn't. So I'm not quite sure what would happen if I tried to enter the States now, given that I'm very out as a dominatrix. Um, I mean, obviously, I'd, they'd, they'd go through my phone and try and find any evidence of me doing penetrative sex work as well. Um, I'd, you know, There's a large chance I'd be detained for however long they wanted to detain me for. Maybe I wouldn't get in. I don't know. I, I know a lot of other sex workers wouldn't get in. Anyone who's out and face out on the internet just shouldn't really even bother at the
0: moment. Yeah, and anybody that's traveling from India to the States also, I'd advise from my own experience, they're not into um, you looking like a hippie who's just spent nine months in India and trying to enter <laughs> their country. You will definitely be detained. They will definitely go through all of your technology and they will look through all of your bags. I mean the state is um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In a naive space I was in my mid twenties thinking like, Whoa, I'm just here to see my girlfriend. No, I've just been traveling (laughs) India. They're like, What? I like had septum piercing, like piercings all over my face basically, all my tattoos showing, just like that's crazy. (laughs) And they had me detained for I think it was like close to six hours. I missed my connecting flight completely and and I went through all my bags and, you know, all my messages, which, you know, I, I'm saying the States, but also the Australian Custom and Border Patrol is just as crazy. And so people will be warned, delete your files. Okay? Yeah. They are watching. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a question about, so, like, leading into your sessions, do you have, um, okay, like this weird thing that, like, professional sports people have you know where they wear like the same socks so they like listen to like the same song to get them amped like is there you know you're going into an altered ego state or space I guess you know um uh is there something that you do particularly when you become um mistress Cleo that is different to you know your your regular persona before you start work
1: Yeah, definitely. I have, I have a whole bunch of different rituals. Um, I think I have one when I, so before I would even enter a dungeon or enter a space with a client, I have like a really extended conversation with them about their limits and their interests and intentions and what they want to get out of this. And that, I mean, that conversation can be like a 10 or 15 minute conversation on a completely equal playing field. So there's no power dynamics or power differentials when I'm speaking to someone about what they're actually looking to get out of a session with me. And then, when I enter a dungeon with them or enter a space with them, that has to immediately change. So, there's sort of like a little speech that I would give to my clients at the beginning. Um, Like, I I make them, I wouldn't let them hold eye contact with me for the beginning. So, when I enter the room, they're not allowed to hold eye contact with me or make eye contact with me at all. And it's not until I give them the permission to make eye contact and then they have to hold it. And then I do a few breathing exercises with them and tell them my rules. And my rules are just that, uh, like, you have to call me mistress. Yes, mistress, no mistress, Etc. cetera. Um, the second rule is that I expect manners. So you have to say pleases and thank yous. And then the third rule is that for all intensive purposes, like your body and mind are no longer your own for the intention of this session. Your orgasm is especially not your own. You're absolutely not to come without my permission. And that sort of sets the tone straight away. So not the eye contact and the breathing are the most important parts of that. And the breathing is instrumental in the rest of the session. It's teaching them two really basic breathing techniques that will help them navigate pain or navigate anxiety so
0: Hmm. wow amazing do you feel there is like you know you've been in the industry for six years is and you stated that you see lots of people but is there like a specific client that comes to you that you can like see in a majority space um
1: I mean there, there is definitely no sort of trope of a client of a dominatrix whatsoever. Like I see clients, 18 to 80, lawyers, tradies, like men, women, non-binary people. It's I see I see so many different people from so many different walks of life. And the only real uh sect of society that I don't come into contact with are just those that don't have the fiscal means to afford it. Other than that though, like it's a pretty even cross section.
0: Um wow. I just think that's so amazing to to really understand that it's like a service that everybody is seeking,
1: you know, yeah. and that's really important
0: to recognize. I think, I think there's a lot of stigma around sex workers that, you know, um, the idea or the picture client who is painted is, you know, probably like cis white, um, relatively wealthy man is what I think a lot of people just assume. But Mm -hmm. actually like, you know, you're myth busting that and, and totally explaining that there is every walk of life who can afford it is, is wanting it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, mean, there's
1: plenty of people that can't afford it, but just play with sexuality or BDSM in their private lives as well. They don't necessarily come into a professional, but I mean, it's definitely kink exists in every society all over the world, wherever there are humans, there's sexuality and wherever there's sexuality, there's kink and BDSM. It's just, it just happens. It's born out of our societies.
0: Yeah, I am really into shibari. It's my thing, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of (laughs) as much as I play in that state. And it's funny because my own experiences with it is that, like, I often I love being tied up I don't really care to do the tying up but I'm also happy to do that because like I'm all about equal you know spaces but for me I really love the feeling of like not being in control of having somebody else like wrap me up like a parcel because so much of my everyday life I have to make decisions for myself for my community and shibari gives me this really amazing outlet where I can just like surrender you know and feel so in my feminine as well I think often as a lesbian there's also a lot of misconception around like oh you know taking on the masculine or you the man in the relationship and then all of these expectations of what you have to do but in that space when I'm in that shabari space with my partner um, who isn't my sexual partner, but I have a shibari, like a few people who I do shibari with, um, you know, it, it's really a space where I can exhale. I feel like I can fully breathe for the first time and okay. just yeah. feel like, whoa, I can I can just like, oh, be held by ropes. And it feels so good when they untie.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and just, it's just that absolute trust and vulnerability, it's allowing yourself to comp- completely surrender which is just not something we have the permission to do almost any other time but when someone's literally tying you up and you literally can't move you have to trust them like you wouldn't let anyone do it unless you had absolute trust for them which is just a beautiful thing in itself
0: Yeah. And I think it's amazing to actually experience that on the cellular level because we live in these, um, you know, spaces that are very individualized, you know, my space, my life. And so trust isn't something that, that comes really easily for a lot of us. I think, especially in the Australian society, it's kind of like, you've got to earn the trust. And what I really find in the BDSM community is that like, people are just very trusting you know especially when you go to workshops and so forth like i've been to shibai workshops before and like yeah you know, i've met the person for like 40 seconds but because i know we're in the context of this space and this workshop like i i really trust them you know i trust mm-hmm. that they do, they're going to know what they're doing and because there is so much fragility around my vulnerability i i feel like they trust me also you know it's just it's it's a really beautiful way to just like crack open humanity and crack open the crux of like, you know, our big hearts and like loving each other as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think there's, there's a lot of self policing within BDSM as well, which uh, I mean, it's not perfect. There's definitely still abuse within BDSM as there is in any subculture, but for the most part, when you exist in a taboo a separate sort of subculture from mainstream society that is stigmatised or judged. You've got to really be active in making sure that you don't have abusers within your community that are giving it an even worse name in the public sphere. So for the most part, when someone does overstep boundaries or someone does do something um, untoward within the BDSM circle, they've really held to account for it and they're not let off the hook easily and they don't just get to slip back into the community two months later with a half-hearted apology and even just the negotiation that you do beforehand. I mean, in what sexual relationship do you go home with someone and spend 15 minutes talking about their interests and intentions and their limits and what potentially might trigger them and if they have any physical problems that could come up? Like, you know, I need to ask someone Do you have any heart problems? Like if I'm going to slap you in the face, are you wearing contact lenses? Do you have bad knees? Can you be on your knees for too long? If I'm seeing an elderly client, I need to know how their hips are. I need to know if they've got arthritis. Like in what sexual relationship or in any relationship do you have that kind of negotiation before entering into a space with a person? But in BDSM, that's absolutely intrinsic. It's the core tenant that, that trust and consent and negotiation, you can't have BDSM without that.
0: Yeah. And wouldn't it be a much um, more idealistic, beautiful world if we did have those conversations, though, you know, in our sexual partners? I mean, like, I just think like having conversations of consent around what does and doesn't feel right would really be so beneficial to both parties and you know specifically i think a lot of women struggle to identify um especially in the bedroom when experiencing new sexual partners how to own what they want you know and if that could become a more normalized conversation that we had in our society it could really break a lot of people open and hopefully um close the orgasm gap
1: hmm yeah oh absolutely yeah um, I just read this book called Why Women Had Better Sex Under Socialism, which mm. is written by the author, Kristen, Kristen, somebody, I can't remember the author. She's a professor of Russian and East European studies, um, working in the States anyway. But she, she wrote this book basically about uh, sexual differences under like state socialism, mostly in the Eastern Bloc, but even democratic socialism in Finland and lots of Scandinavian countries and how that directly translates into things like closing the orgasm gap. I think there were some studies in there from the reunification of Germany when East and West Germany came back together and they did a lot of comparative studies as to how the West Germans and the East Germans experienced sexuality differently. And the East Germans and lots of lots of women that lived under state socialism, like for all its flaws, like don't think for a minute that I'm advocating any sort of like return to totalitarian socialist governments. Um, but I mean, for all its flaws, women had more economic independence, were more able to ask for what they wanted in the bedroom, were less likely to stay in abusive relationships because they had economic independence. There was state funded child care, state funded health care, um, you know, no like no fault divorce laws, increased access to abortion, reproductive health, like all of these things that go along with the the goals of socialism, even though a lot of them weren't exactly realized or experienced to their full extent or full you know the idea of what the ideal of what they might have wanted definitely wasn't realized in a lot of cases but for women a lot of them were better off in the bedroom
0: which is just an interesting thing to think about mm, yeah definitely more freedom in that space that sounds like an amazing book I'm going to read that yeah it's really good I would highly recommend it um okay so what about I've got Two more questions for you, because I could mm-hmm. talk to you all afternoon. I'm really enjoying <laughs> this conversation. Your mind is blowing mine, um, <laughs> but I just am being conscious of, of time. And I just wanted to just ask the question on, um, like, what myths do you think that mainstream society have around um, the sex industry that you'd like to expose?
1: Ooh. Um. That's a huge question. I think there are so many myths. One of the ones I come up against a lot just from my like very centered position in this is that I tell people I'm a sex worker and they have a lot of misconceptions about what that means and, to dismantle you know there's in the sex industry we call it the hierarchy, and it's the idea that if I am a dominatrix or a stripper or a cam girl or a phone sex operator or somebody who is not having direct penetrative sex
0: oh can I um sorry (laughs) it just blocked out can I ask that question again or can I get you to start from the start because I really want to hear what you said but I just lost the first bit of it
1: (laughs) yeah for sure um Yeah, I think a lot of the time when I tell people what I do for a living, uh, I make an effort and I'm quite conscious never to separate myself from any other member of the sex industry. So I know as a dominatrix that I will come up against less stigma than many other people who work within our industry do and that's something that it's. it's, I think it's incredibly important to dismantle that, this idea of like in the sex industry we call it the hierarchy which is the idea that if you're not having penetrative sex with your client or if you're charging a lot of money or, you know, like sugar babying, or uh, being a dom or a stripper or a cam girl or a phone sex operator or one of these, like, sort of less direct forms of sex work, that is somehow inherently better than another form of sex work. And it's, that is just so damaging to the industry as a whole. Like, we already have so many issues as an industry that we come up against let alone as women, let alone as women who are using our sexuality for like gain in whatever way. Uh, just the idea of more infighting within our industry and then like changed stigma from outside the industry is the most counterintuitive, most detrimental thing. So that's, you know, I'm no better than anybody who has sex with their clients in the traditional heteronormative idea of sex. And I'm no better than a street-based worker. And I'm no better than a worker who charges far less money than I am. and. I think it's it's really important to address that this idea, uh, like even the idea of empowerment, which is just a word that is found in every discussion of sex work in the current time tire. When you talk about sex work, and I did an interview recently where they asked me if it was empowering to put a strap on on it, and it's like. Uh, like of course on an individual and a subjective level like i might fi- i might feel empowered by aspects of the sex industry the the aspect of bodily or sexual autonomy or like financial freedom and economic independence that i can get but needless to say just as like just as it's likely that those who have the most control over their working conditions are going to be the ones that genuinely enjoy their work in any industry like whether you're a dentist system conditions you'll probably enjoy your job more which just comes back to labor rights it's also true that it's largely those in the legal aspects of the regulated framework and those that are white and middle class and otherwise not as marginalized are going to be the ones that feel empowered by the sex industry but it's not even the right question like a more useful question than is it empowering to be a sex worker is like How has power been taken away from women under the political and economic and cultural systems that they exist in? Where is the power deficit? How can we collectively try to reclaim power and not just as sex workers but as women full stop, as women under capitalism, as women under, like, neoliberal governments? Like, shifting the emphasis from the sex in sex work and the moral ideas around that and what that symbolises to people like women and men alike and and back to the work of sex work forces this closer examination of the triggers that surround the entry into the sex industry like it tends to be for me if I I can I can just go back to uni if I want to I, I could work in a lot of other different fields if I wanted to like I studied design I like I did a floristry degree in my gap year. like there's a lot of options to me but for a lot of people sex work tends to be characterized by a lack of choices not an abundance of them and it's only through systemic change on a macro level of the entire society that we're living within that we can even start to address some of the negatives of sex work and you know street-based workers who aren't charging very much money and people who are doing natural services and like condoms and not using protection like the people that are the most marginalized migrant workers workers with mental health act uh, mental health issues or, or drug addictions or workers who have dependent children and no one else to fall back on, like again in Australia and New Zealand, we're really lucky to have a welfare system at all. There are a lot of countries that don't have a social welfare system to fall back on. So before you even start attacking different members of the sex industry or different facets of the sex industry and positing one as better than the other, the dominatrix or stripper as being better than a street-based worker or a full-service worker or a girl that's working in a brothel, like think about the inequality that we're all living within and the relative advantages that could be brought about by like democratic socialism as opposed to the structures that we're living within right now it's just i think the issue of sex work and the moral ideas around sex work gets so caught up in the sex and not in the work that you miss why a lot of people are even in this position in the first place and that doesn't do anyone any favors
0: here here
1: yeah (laughs) right that was a really long answer to that
0: question (laughs) Yeah, it was a big question. I mean, I think that whole question could take an hour of um, an entire podcast, you know, it's just, I think it's really important that there are a lot of myths and misconceptions. Um, yeah, around this industry, I mean, around, around a lot of things in our society. And I guess that's the reason why I wanted to create this podcast, really. And that's why it's called It Takes Courage to Tell the Truth, because I think the more perspectives and, um you know exposure of real life stories um is the way that we can really help to shift and change the society and more media that isn't controlled by one rich white guy so wouldn't that be a dream yeah if we could could just dismantle the murdoch media empire we'd be on our way (laughs) slowly but surely you know i don't know how it's going to happen but something's got to shift Um, all right, I have the last question here. Um, it's just a question that I ask everybody. Um, and it is, what's the biggest truth that you've discovered during your human experience? Oh,
1: good question. I, th- I mean, I think um, it's kind of hard to think about this in any any realm other than work right now. So I'm just like immediately going back to, I think before I did this professionally, I definitely had some sort of understanding of where people's fetishes and fantasies came from, but it wasn't backed up with um, like any experiential or like any direct experience. And the more work that I do and the more people that I see and the more clients that I see, the more clear it is to me. Like all that our fetishes are is just a reflection of the societies that we are living in. So it's I thought that is just like an incredibly interesting truth to me and like an endlessly fascinating topic. There's this researcher in the states called Justin Lemiller. oh Le-Miller, um, who did a study. It's like one of the largest studies into American fantasies, and he found this super interesting divide, which is like absolutely backed up by my own experience, like my own anecdotal experience at least, in the way that people vote and the politics that they subscribe to and the fantasies that they have. So he was finding that a lot of Republicans had fantasies around um, like extramarital things. So maybe like swinging or having threesomes or cheating on their wives or uh, cuckolding fetishes or things that uh, like in the sort of Republican sphere are directly antithesis to this like traditional family kind of thing, you know, anti-abortion and anti-blah, blah, blah, that they're constantly pushing. And then people who voted for Democrats, like people who are strongly on the left, would have these fantasies around power dynamics. So they would want to explore BDSM and masochism and like having someone else take away their choice and take away their power. And, it, and I mean, those are the things that most Democrats are actively fighting against. Like you want to live in a more equal society and you want more equity for the people around you. So these, something in our brain just like fetishizes the things that we're scared of or the things that aren't actually our own values. And that's like, just so interesting you know the amount of like really really masculine cis white Aussie blokes that come to me and want to be like dressed up in lingerie and have lipstick on and like get an excuse to explore this feminine side of them that their mates would never let them live down is astounding and it's I find that is just so interesting that people people's brains with no control of our own just like fetishize the things that we're scared of or the like fears that we have in the society around us And that's been a pretty relevant truth, I suppose.
0: Mm, Wow, that's amazing. It's really fascinating. I guess a lot of that has got to do with people feeling trapped in the character that they create, you know, especially when they think that, you know, that persona in which they, you know, were at school or they were at uni or which translates into the workplace is a persona that they can't shift. And I guess that's Mm -hmm. really you know, just a lot of inflexibility within our society that, like, I hate this idea of, like, um, when people say, like, Oh, they've really changed. Like it's such a like negative thing. I'm like, fuck yeah, they change. Like we are always having different experiences with different people and different places all the time. Like if if you don't expect that I'm not going to be different to the woman I was like six months ago, like you're crazy. I'm always changing, you know. And and that's what I like to tell people. Like whenever I'm speaking my truth, it's my truth right now. But like, don't quote me on it in five years because I might be in a really (laughs) different place. (gasps) Okay. <gasps> Yeah, that's the danger of facebook memories <laughs> yeah make you definitely yeah. years ago and you're like oh i don't know about that one anymore <laughs> yeah i'm because uh, i was a vegan for a while and i think a post came up recently and i was just like shaking my head because i'm just like not bad anymore and i'm an advocate more for um you know buying local and more sustainable products and and that was just because i was not as informed as i was back then but well, i had exactly the same journey like yeah maybe, maybe vegan to oh
1: maybe Maybe, maybe this isn't as environmentally sound <laughs> as I seem to have convinced myself that it was when I'm buying like vegan cheese made from coconut oil that's been through three countries and shipped all the way here.
0: For sure and maybe they contributed to palm oil and deforestation in order uh-huh. to plant them <laughs> and yeah yeah it's an interesting one and when you set to dig deep onto it I think it's um, really fascinating but I am gonna have a, some kind of very political podcast around um, you know sustainable agriculture and and veganism in the future so I'll make sure I send it to you yeah cool <laughs> sounds great Um, babe thanks so much for the chat it's been such a privilege to have a conversation with you and like I said your brain is amazing you have oh. so much good information and I'm just yeah really honored that you came on the show so
1: thank you I'm honored that you asked me and this is I love what you're doing I think this podcast is going to be amazing I'm happy about it